Good morning. Good morning. You guys are awake. This is good. Okay. So I want you to imagine something with me. I, wanna, I want you to imagine uh, perfection. So I, I don't know where your mind goes with that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it goes to the beach. Like maybe you're sitting on the beach right now and you have the sound of waves hitting the shore and, and then the sun is hitting your face. Like maybe, maybe that's perfection and there's this rest, joy, peace. Maybe your mind takes you to the top of a snowy mountain, right? Like maybe you're sitting there and you're seeing the majesty that God created. Uh, there's majesty and beauty. Maybe perfection takes you to a house that's well organized. Like you walk into your house and it's clean. It's very, very clean. No toys anywhere. Yes. There we go. That's right. Uh, maybe that's maybe where perfection takes you. Maybe it takes you to the last day of classes. And summer's around the corner. There's no more stress. There's um, just peace. No matter where it takes us, perfection is something that we all crave. Perfection is something that we all want. And the reason is quite simple. A perfect God created a perfect world. And a perfect God in his love spoke everything into existence. And he called everything good. It was perfect in every way imaginable. It was complete beauty, peace, harmony, unity. Uh, the Bible, the Bible uses the word shalom to express this. So the picture of shalom or peace is this idea that expresses complete, whole, flourishing in every way imaginable. In other words, shalom communicates the way things ought to be. So whenever you are imagining your perfection, that is, you're actually imagining shalom a little bit. And in this perfection, in the beautiful world that God created, in the perfect world, in this perfection, the human race first began to doubt God's goodness. And to understand the brokenness, to understand this, we need to see, remember perfection. The way it was. Because unless we get that God made everything how he wanted like, like, have you thought about this? That like God created this world exactly how he wanted, in perfection, then we won't get the weight of the fall. We won't get the weight of, of the depravity of humanity. We won't get the weight of the brokenness that sin carries. We won't fully understand how shattered our world really is, and we won't understand how broken my and your heart really is. So if we compare, if we go to Genesis 1 and 2 and we see how things ought to be and we put our lives against that, our lives don't measure up, right? It's perfect. We're not. If we lay the world against it, it doesn't measure up either. In fact, it's hard to even imagine perfection. I made you guys imagine perfection because perfection is something that doesn't happen all that much, right? And the reason is, is because sin has shattered shalom. And that's what we're going to be talking about. That's where we're going to be diving the, the doctrine of the fall, right? Um, and, and before we jump into this doctrine, uh, I want to give us, again, just some guidelines for what we, well, what we do uh, when we approach doctrine. And so here's some couple of guidelines. First, even though we're not walking through a book of the Bible, that's what we usually do. We walk through books in the Bible. We're still going to use the Bible as the source of the doctrine, right? Like today, we're going to be in Genesis 3. We're going to study that passage together. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, I, I say this 
all the time, not always, but I often say this, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't own a paper Bible, there's a black one right in front of you, take that and let that be a gift to you. Like that, that should be yours. Like just take it. I buy a bunch of Bibles just for that reason. Or if you know somebody that you want to give a Bible, do that. Just take that Bible. Um, so that's the first thing. We're going to be in the scriptures. The second thing is we don't study any doctrine for knowledge's sake. Like so if we dive into us to talk about any doctrine, it's not just for knowledge. We want that knowledge to connect to our hearts and move our hearts towards greater affection for our Lord and Savior. Right? So anytime we talk about doctrines, if that is not happening, if it's just staying in your head, there's disconnects happening somehow. So I want that to be connected so, uh, through, through our study. And lastly is that as we are studying doctrines, we won't not, will not cover everything that it could be said about each doctrine during our time. Right? And, and that's done on purpose, partially, uh, because you don't want to be here for a few hours. Uh, but also, uh, I, want you to, I want you to go back and read about it. Like, so if we talk about a doctrine here, and you walk away, and you're thinking, man, I wonder about this. He didn't say anything about this. Well, go read about it. Like, that, that's probably God stirring something inside of your heart to go and explore. So I want you to go and explore some of that. So, um, all right, let me, let me read our fourth doctrine, and then we'll unpack it and apply it to our hearts. So the doctrine of the fall. We believe that Adam, who was created in the image of God, distorted that image for himself and all his offsprings by giving into Satan's temptation and sinning against the Creator God. As a result, all human beings choose sin and are alienated from God, corrupted in every aspect of their being, and are condemned to death apart from God's own gracious intervention. Right? So that's the doctrine. That's what we're going to be walking through today. Um, And if you have been with us from the beginning, when we started this doctrine series, you may have noticed that everything is pointing to God. Right? It started with God. We started with the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who eternally exists to glorify one another. And, and, in God, uh, and God in love speaks to us through the Bible, uh, the 66 books that he gave to us. So God gave us the ability to get to know him. Uh, he also in, in love created this universe. And at the climax of creation, he created humans. But he didn't just create us like the rest of uh, creation. No, he created us in his own image. That means that we are to reflect his character in the world and rule on his behalf. And we talked about this last week, what, uh, what that rule and dominion looks like. Dominion means taking what we have and cultivating it, uh, creating something new out of it. We simply continue the work that God started. God created, so, so we create. Growing food and growing families. And so what happens when families grow? Well, that becomes neighborhoods eventually. And whenever our neighborhoods grow, what happens? Then, then cities appear because it's, 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 it's moving out, right? So in those cities, you have communities that take care of each other. So ruling over the earth is, that, is the everyday act of our work and creativity and nurture. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see God placing Adam in the garden, and we see Adam living this out. 
He's living this out in perfection. In Genesis 2, verse 15 and through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So up to this point in the story, God has provided a flourishing world to flourishing humans, and he has defined the boundaries for flourishing. And in the midst of this perfection, God gives them a prohibition. Uh, they had a perfect union with God. Like, th- think about it. Like He was walking with them. Everything was perfect for them. They were walking with God, and yet God gave them a prohibition. Have you ever thought about that before? That in the garden there was a prohibition? Don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And at this point in the story, will the first humans trust God's definition of good and evil, or will they rebel against God's definition of good and evil and try to define for themselves what flourishing means? So that's when we pick up the story. We pick up the story in Genesis 3. In this passage, we'll see how our doctrine connects. So I'm going to read our doctrine again, just a section of it, and then we'll see it played out through Genesis 3. So our doctrine again, we believe that Adam, who was created in the image of God, distorted that image for himself and all his offsprings by giving into Satan's temptation and and sinning against the the creator God. Now, if you have... If you don't have a Bible, Genesis 3 won't be on, on the screen. I want you to actually grab a Bible. So grab a Bible and go to Genesis 3. Go to Genesis 3. That's where we're going to be studying majority of our time right now. Genesis 3 says this. 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So right off the bat, right off the bat, there's no introduction to the serpent. Uh, We simply know that God made the serpent, and the serpent is is in rebellion against God. And we also know that he wants to lead the humans into this rebellion. So he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the story is often read as this bedtime story from children's Bibles. And it's this beautiful, colorful snake wrapped around an apple tree. And it's just this nice little children's story. Adam and Eve are talking to the serpent as they're like kind of almost smiling. And they're having this dialogue. But I think we need to read the story as a horror film. Because this is the moment when the world is fractured. This is the moment when men and women rebelled against their creator. So creation, God created us, and yet we're rebelling against that creator. It's a bad story. And the way the serpent, the snake, wants to lead Adam and Eve into rebellion is first by mocking God. He says, did God actually say? The word actually is one that can be translated as really or indeed. So the serpent doesn't deny what God said. He's mocking what God said. Did God seriously say that? This question seems innocent at first, but the heart of it, it's trying to change Adam and Eve's attitude towards God. It's introducing them to distrust. So the first thing to notice is that that the fall of the human race stands not with an action or even a thought, 
but with an attitude of heart. For the first time, their hearts are told to question God. So this, this serpent speaks and questions God's word, and he questions what the Lord said to Adam and Eve earlier, what we read, right, in chapter 2. So now in chapter 3, verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So Eve disagrees at first. She's doing pretty good. Uh, the, the temper comes in, whispers in her ear, and she says, no, that's not what God said. So the serpent takes a more direct approach and just outright calls God a liar. In verse 4, we read, But the serpent said to the women, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So at first, the serpent uh, greases their heart to question God. Then once they are there, he churns them with a lie. And the essence of this lie is this. It's, if you obey God, you'll miss out. If you obey God, you won't be happy. If you obey the will of God, it will keep you from being all you want to be. The serpent doesn't go after the existence of God. Right? He, he's not questioning, is God real or not? He doesn't go there. He doesn't go after the law or the will or the holiness of God. The serpent doesn't say, oh, God doesn't care what you do. He doesn't deny his existence. He doesn't deny the law of God. He doesn't deny the law of God or the will of God or the holiness of God. He goes after the goodness of God. He denies the goodness and the love and the grace of God. With his two arguments, first question and then a lie, the serpent leads Adam and Eve to distrust God's goodness. you really trust this kind of God? He seems to be holding out on you. And you probably should take things into your own hands. And at this point, Eve buys into the lie, right? Verse 6, we read, So when the women saw that the tree was good for food, so until this moment, she didn't think the tree looked good. But, but the serpent comes in, whispers some lies, twists God's word, and all of a sudden her heart begins to decline in faith. She's starting to think that the fruit of the tree really would be good to eat. She's thinking, maybe the serpent is right. Maybe God doesn't have my good in mind because the fruit really does look good. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So the fruit was to be desired because it would help her be like God. What's ironic is that we are made in the image of God. We are already like God. But that's not enough. We want to be God we want to be in charge. Uh, we want to be little sovereigns over our lives. We don't want to surrender under God's rule. We want to rule ourselves. We want to decide what our flourishing looks like. So the serpent tempts her to be God. And what does the woman do? She took the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So this is the moment the shalom is shattered. The world is fractured. And I was thinking this week, 
I was, I was thinking a lot of like just how the story could have gone differently. I was thinking about like what if God came to Adam and Eve and, and explained all the ins and outs of why the tree is so bad to eat. Like God would have said like if you eat of this tree, you, there will be infinite suffering and misery and death for the rest of human history. What if he gave them a vision of the future? You know, he's God. He's walking with them. So he could have just like, hey, here's a slideshow. You guys don't know what slideshow is, but, but eventually you will. So he like pulls up a slideshow and shows them what that is, what, what, how destructive this will be. Like, what if that was the conversation? And I think Adam and Eve would have walked away and said, no, thanks. I'm not touching that tree. Because they would have analyzed the situation and would have said it's not worth it. But is that really obedience then? Is that really obedience then? No, it's not. It's, it's a cost-benefit analysis. It's, their compliance would have come out of a self-interest, not out of trusting God. Sin doesn't happen because God hasn't given us reason enough to obey. Sin happens because a root of distrust has grown in our heart. Sin happens because we trust ourselves instead of trusting God. Trusting God. God is saying, my children, I gave you this gift of life. This world is a gift for you. Enjoy. I made you in my own image. You are already like me. Now live and nurture. Trust my good rule and don't eat from this tree. I have your welfare in mind. But the serpent knew he could nudge God's children away from trusting God's rule. He knew it, would, it wouldn't be hard to get them to trust their own rule. And we know that because of what he said, right? You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is virtually what we repeat over and over in our lives. We're, we're putting ourselves in the place where only God should be. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they rejected God's rule, they questioned God's character, and they spurned his provision. And we do that every day. We reject God's rule, we question his character, and we spurn his provision. And we all have a desire in us to be tiny versions of God answering to no one but ourselves. So where do you see yourselves preferring your way over God's? Where do, you, where, where do you doubt his goodness? What are places that you are discontent with, the ways God has provided? I want you to think about that. Because answering those questions would, be, would reveal where sin is probably knocking at the door. So sin has entered the world. Shalom is shattered. Now let's look at the second part of our doctrine statement. As a result, as a result that sin has entered, all human beings choose sin and are alienated from God, corrupted in every aspect of their being, and are condemned to death apart from God's own gracious intervention. So the sin of Adam and Eve spread to humanity. The shalom was broken, shattered, and we're all infected by it. Romans 5, 12 puts it this way. Uh, Paul, he's laying this out for us and he's explaining this. It says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. 
So you and everyone you know is devastated by the same disease. Since sin entered the world, now everyone is born with it. Uh, David in Psalm 51 is where David says, Behold, verse 5, 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So this is the doctrine of total inability. Sin affects all of us without any exception. So let me define this. Let me define this. And actually, total inability is the very much our doctrine statement. Uh, total inability means all human beings choose sin and are alienated from God, corrupted in every aspect of their being, and are condemned to death apart from God's own gracious intervention. So let's flesh this out now. Um, this means that every part of a human person, mind, will, and body, has been affected by the fall. From birth, our relationship with God and others is fractured. And one way to put this, or one scholar put it, is that we, don't, we do not think as we ought, feel as we should, and will as we might. And that doesn't change unless the grace of God hits our heart. In the context of Genesis 3, we will live on a throne of self unless we taste the grace of God. Until the grace of God hits us, we'll continue to trust ourselves as the savior of our story. Instead of trusting God, we'll rely on me, myself, and I. And that, by definition, is rebellion against the holy God. By definition, that is what what Adam and Eve did, saying, we don't trust your rule, God. We trust ours. And that won't change until God touches our heart. Ephesians chapter 2 shows us the condition of our heart from birth. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So that is the description of our state before God. Death, dead in our sins. Picking ourselves as a false savior over and over and over. And John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. This is Jesus talking, Jesus describing, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So from birth, we have inability to submit to to God unless the grace of God touches us. Listen, the sinfulness of our hearts is not hard to identify. Uh, let me ask someone to cut in front of you during a rush hour. And, and, and you see what happens. See how you react during that time. Or let me send a pushy salesperson to your doorsteps during dinner time. Right? Actually, just a pushy salesperson to your doorsteps. How about that? And it reveals your heart, right? It reveals how quickly you, you treat that person less than. Or anyone close, truly close to us. Anyone, anyone who knows us, who knows us with our guard down, testify to our brokenness. 
You see, there's a sickness in our, in our soul, and that sickness points us back to the original sin from our first parents. So we have fallen from the, from the perfection of creation. We have churned on the creator and reject his rule. And now, now we are now are in bondage to ourselves. And so we desperately need to hear Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, right? And we need to hear the phrase, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we need God and his grace to touch us. We cannot please God and we can't save ourselves from his wrath. In other words, uh, we can't come to God on our own strength or resources. We have no hope but grace. No hope but in Christ. Romans 18, Paul continues to unpack this and says, Therefore, as one trespass has led to condemnation for all men, uh, for all men uh, he's describing Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Adam and Eve disobedience led to sin and condemnation for all men. Jesus' righteousness leads to justification and life for, for all men. The fall was a great tragedy. Adam and Eve caused us to be born sinners. Jesus, through his action on the cross, made us righteous. The fall turns our hearts into self-sovereigns, but Jesus, in his obedience, turns our heart towards the true sovereign. He alone can take a dead heart and put a heartbeat into it. He alone can save us by grace and grace alone. The way he saves us is not disconnected from the fall. Listen, Jesus went to the tree of life and made the, uh, the, he went to the tree of death and made that tree become the tree of life. Because of Adam and Eve, we constantly put ourselves where God deserves to be on the throne of our heart, but God puts himself where we deserve to be on the cross. As self-sovereigns, our rule will eventually lead to death. That is where rebellion against the holy God goes. Jesus goes to the cross and shows us how his rule is self-sacrificing. He puts himself where we deserve to be and takes the wrath that we deserve upon himself. This action was an action of great love. And only this action, only this action speaks to our soul and restores to our sight the beauty of God. It restores the broken shalom. This action of his son dying on the cross is the only action that actually restores the broken shalom. He rules, Jesus rules by serving and serving to the point of death. The fall was a great tragedy. Jesus dying on the cross is a great redemption. The cross of Jesus crushes the lie that God can't be trusted, right? So if you're struggling with doubt or you're, if you're wrestling with, with some kind of lie, the cross crushes that lie because God is a good God. He is trustworthy. 
And in the face of the fall and sin and pain and death, he gave us his only son, Jesus, so that through Jesus we can have hope and righteousness and eternal life. The answer is Jesus. So let me pray for us.